Arkansas. Um, I uh, did what you're supposed to do when you graduate high school. I went to college because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, that was the only reason I went. And about after, after about a year and a half and about a 1.3 grade point average, I decided I needed to make a change. And so I, uh, from there I plumbed for 10 years. And um, through, just through, through the Lord working, he, uh, he called me to, to ministry, uh, started a ministry. I spent several years in youth ministry in 2007. My family and I, we moved to Searcy. And I was um, student pastor, associate pastor, and in 2010 became the pastor of Trinity Baptist Church. And I did that until February of this year where um, God opened a door, giving me an opportunity to uh, be a part of Arkansas Baptist Children and Family Ministries. And so I've been doing that since February, and, and it, has, it has been a tremendous, tremendous thing to see God move. And I'd love to uh, eventually, at some point, share more about that with you guys. Um, when Brother Fulton asked me if I would be able to, uh, to come and preach and, and be with y'all, um, and I was excited to do it. I love to preach. I love the opportunity to just to, to share from God's Word. But more than that, I just love to be with God's people. Um, I believe in the local church. I believe in the association. And I believe that we're a whole lot better together um, than we are individually. And so, um, just give you all a heads up. I will be here next week. So that may, you know, here in the next 40 minutes or so, it may determine what you're going to be doing next Sunday. But I, um, <clears throat> I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and preach. So this morning, you can go ahead and start making your way to Psalm 95. If you want, but this morning, what I want to talk to you about, what I want to share from God's Word about is thankfulness. And so as we, as we focus on giving thanks, I want us, I want us to, to go well beyond just uh, surface gratitude and spiritual platitudes. Because one of the easiest, when we think about giving thanks, when we're in church, we think about giving thanks, one of the easiest ways to, to, to do that is to, to begin to think about worship, right? We worship through song. We worship through the reading and the, and the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And we even worship through giving. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with making those distinctions. But when we start to make those distinctions, what happens? We tend to segment worship, right? And, and for many, they prefer the, the music part better. Some will retort that they prefer the, uh, the worship through preaching. And then there are those handful of super duper saints that actually feel like they worship through giving, right? Like we know those people. But what is worship? What is it? Is it just a series of, of segmented events that occur weekly as we gather together as Christians? I mean, is that what it is? Because if we leave it to those segmented portions, what happens when all of a sudden the music doesn't move you? What happens when the preaching of the Word doesn't speak to you? Does that mean that we've not experienced worship? Now, when we think about the word worship, like so many other words in our English language, we get the word worship from combining two words in the Greek language. So, so the first word is, is, is toward, and the second is Kiss And so properly, the word that we understand as worship means, literally means to kiss 
the ground when bowing, kneeling, or laying flat before a superior. Well, it doesn't sound like music, does it? It doesn't really sound like the preaching hour. It doesn't sound like passing the offering plate. And I'm not beating up on what we have kind of boiled all this down to in worship. What I want us to do this morning, and I beg you to hang with me, I want us to truly grasp and be reminded what worship is. Because worship is, I believe, it is a multi-step Process. And by that I mean that first there is the recognition of the superiority of the one being worshipped, right? Then there has to be the recognition of the inferiority of the one offering that worship. And then finally the humble offering of a gesture that, that brings together the realization of those two realities. I'm in the presence of superiority. I'm in the presence of just unspeakable greatness, understanding that I'm in that presence. Like, it's, it's me. It's fallible me. And I know that's not a scholarly definition, but that's what we're talking about. And I was actually listening to a brother preaching as I was coming in this morning, I like to do that. I like to scan the radio stations and, and, and find these, these different guys preaching. This guy was doing a tremendous job and, 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 and just continued to remind me. And, and I think we've got to get to these points. Worship is not an event. Worship is not a style. And worship is not a preference, is it? If we look at the, at the scholarly definition... Webster's says that, that worship is to honor or show reverence for, a, for as a divine being or supernatural power, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, and devotion. So let's stop right there. Let's talk about this. Again, we are Christians. We are the body of Christ. We are those who have given our hearts, our lives to Jesus. So for Christians, our worship is to whom? Our worship is to God, right? So that has to mean that our worship to God, is given for God. Like we are offering worship to God. Speaking corporately here, our worship to God, our worship, our offering of praise through song, praise through giving, praise through the reading and preaching and teaching of the word, all of this, when done according to the way God instructs us, all of This literally is the act of moving towards God with a kiss, if you will, as an intimate expression of praise and thanksgiving. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about worship. That's what it's supposed to look like. Not singing the right songs, not hitting the right talking points in a sermon. We are offering Praise, we are offering thanksgiving to the creator of everything. And so I beg you to hear me this morning. Don't ever think of worship in any other way. Worship is not a drudgery. Worship is not 
a performance. It is the highest expression of praise to the God of gods, to the King of kings, and to the Lord of lords. And it gets even better. Let's look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95, we pick up and the psalmist says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. For the Lord is the great God and the King above all gods. In His hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He has made it, and His hands have formed the dry land. Oh, let us come and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are His people of His pasture, the sheep of His hands. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. That's heavy. Especially for Psalms, right? We go to Psalm for encouragement. We go to Psalm to, to feel good about it. We go to Psalm, a lot of times we go to Psalm when we read something in the Bible. Well, I didn't understand that. I'm going to go to Psalms. That way I can feel better about it. But I want to do this this morning. I want to break this down into five distinct parts. Okay? Number one, we have right out of the gate, the psalmist gives us an invitation to worship. In verses 1 and 2, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. I want you to to think about that. I mean, can you imagine God, the creator of everything, desires for broken, sinful, rebellious humanity to come into His presence and worship. Well, who are we? According to Jeremiah 29, 11, or excuse me, 29, we know that when God has a plan. But according to Jeremiah 17, 9, what do we know about us? What do we know about our heart? The heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things. And it is desperately wicked. From the very, very beginning, man has been obstinate towards God. In Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve. They were in paradise. They walked with God in the garden. In the cool of the day, it tells us. They were in perfect relationship with God. And what did they do? They rebelled. They rebelled to the point, if we kick all the way forward to Genesis chapter 6, we read that the whole world had become so corrupt that God did what? He looked down. He said, I am grieved that I even created man. And so I am going to wipe it out. And I'm going to start all over. And Noah, it's you. I'm going to start over with you. That same cycle, the same rebellion, the same running from God that is happening still 
Today, if you look back in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve, when, when they took of the fruit, a lot of times we blame that on Eve, right? What, is, what does it say? She took the fruit and she gave it to whom? Her husband. Where was he? Clear on the other side of the garden? No, who was right there beside her? He didn't stop her. He was just as interested in Satan's lies as Eve was. And so after they had done this, Genesis 3 tells us in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, What? Where are you? Hey, Adam, where are you at, buddy? Church, hear me real quick. Ever since that moment, God has been the one seeking. God is the one who searches for man. Immediately, Adam and Eve didn't didn't recognize their sin and say, Oh, my goodness, and run to God. They tried to hide from the presence of God. People every day today are continually trying to hide from the presence of God. But in Luke 19.10, Jesus says what? The Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. So if we go back to Psalm 95, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalm. Church, we are invited to come and worship. And you know what scripture tells us we should do? This is uncomfortable because we're Southern Baptists. What does it say do? Shout. Give exuberant exclamation to the rock, the solid foundation of our salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving that you even get to be in the presence of holiness. Shout, he says. Twice we are given this instruction. We get so uptight in church and there's got to be so much reverence. I submit to you this morning that I feel a lot of times that our reverence is one of the biggest proponents of the quenching of the Holy Spirit. Not true reverence towards God, but what we've assumed that reverence must mean in church. David, the psalmist, when the ark was brought back from Obed-Edom, right, it, it had it in captivity, then you had all the, all the weird tumors and, and, and the rats and, and uh, the Philistines made all these carved things and they sent it back and, and the ark ends up at the house of Obed-Edom and David goes to get it without praying and doing it right, taking the Levites and poor Uzzah, he touches it and he falls over dead and this is a weird thing. He's like, I don't want anything to do with it. But once they did it right, once they, once they properly reverenced God and went about the process of worshiping God to the level and to the manner of what he deserves, they brought that ark back into the holy city. And what did David do? He, we, Southern Baptist, again, as long as we keep one foot on the floor, we can do it. But he danced before the ark, even so much that his wife said, Dude, you embarrassed the fool out of me. And what did David say? Sister... You think that's something, I can be way more undignified than this because we are talking about the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the creator of all things. We should truly shout when we think about the fact that we have been saved. 
We should shout when we consider that through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, that that event has forever removed that separation. Remember, the New Testament talks about that wall of separation that has been broken down when at the moment of Jesus' death, the, 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 the veil in the temple was rent. It was torn from top to bottom, removing the separation between a holy God and sinful man because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Maybe... Maybe, just maybe, we should do more shouting. Now, if my mother were here right now, there would be, I could just see, because my mama is a woman of faith, and my mama is a woman of reverence. And she might just be shaking her head saying, Timothy James. But church, we should shout. The psalmist right here does not invite us to come to church. The psalmist invites us to come and worship. So number one, we have the invitation. Number two, we have the reason. In verse 3, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hands the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His. The seas are His. For He made in His hand form the dry land. So here's the why. It's great to be invited to worship service. There are people all over the world who worship, right? And some are worshiping various deities, while others may worship success, money, fame, acceptance, and so on. But right here in the Word of God, right here in Psalm 95, we get the real why of worship. But there are people that are stuck in a system of belief, and they have no idea why. People all over the world, they, have no, they don't have anything written. They have no personal experience. They are just stuck in a cultural religious system that provides little or no hope. Many gather to worship, and I use that term worship extremely lightly, but many will worship out of fear. Many will worship out of obligation if they don't offer the right incense, if they don't offer the correct spice, if they don't bring the, the, the correct monetary amount, then they are going to suffer at the hands of a cruel little G God. There are others who will worship a, a, a pantheon of God who together account for creation and the forces of nature. But we are not them. Church, we have Psalm 95. And we will never understand why we worship until we understand who we are worshiping. You know what the psalmist says? For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Our, our English translation, it renders that right there, uh, the object of worship as Lord. And the Hebrew is Yahweh or Jehovah, right? And it's not an ambiguous lowercase l, Lord. It is the proper name of our Genesis 1 in the beginning, God, Elohim. He is the creator, the great God. So there's no question as to who we are talking about here. It's not a collection of lesser gods attempting to make up some altar god, some, some uh, fictitious god. We, as the body of Christ, we as humanity, forget, let's set the body of Christ over here for a second. All humanity, saved, lost, indifferent towards God, are invited to come and worship our great God. 
He's the God that Paul speaks of. Remember when Paul in Acts chapter 17, I love the book of Acts. Remember in uh, Acts 17 when Paul stood before the Areopagus in verse 23. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell over all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that if they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him. And I, I, I love that, that word there, grope. We know the song, we know the hymn that speaks about groping in darkness, right? When the lights are off, if the lights shut off, if you come back here tonight, I know it's summertime, so we've got to back to 10 o'clock tonight. You come in here and, and you forgot your Bible and you need to get something and you don't want to fool with turning the light switch on, what are you going to do? You are going to grope around in the darkness, right? You're going to feel your way through it, trying to find something. Listen. Trying to find something to hang on to. Look at what Paul says right there. So that they should seek the Lord in hopes that they might grope for Him, reach for Him in their darkness, and find Him. Because He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live, we move, and we have our being. And so the psalmist continues, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. He says the same thing again. It, it's that poetic, that, that poetic style of the psalm, the first line, making the case for the second line by reciting the truth of the first, right, in just a different way. It's the same truth, it's just a different way, two ways of communicating, reinforcing that truth. So, all that to say, Yahweh, is the great God. And when it comes to other gods, little g gods, imagined and superficial gods, Yahweh is the king above them. And so I, I, I beg you to hear me clearly. The psalmist is not, he, he is not promoting, he is not recognizing other deistic beings, right? But... We know this to be true. If these imagined gods are worshipped, then they become real in the imagination of those who are worshipping. Therefore, they become a god to whom these people offers worship. But the psalmist clearly states that even if a person is of that religious worldview, even if they worship a pantheon of gods such as like the, the Hindu faith with over 300,000 Gods, even if they believe in a form of uh, of higher power, but they don't believe in Jehovah God of the Bible, even in their ardent belief, according to Psalm ninety five, whatever they believe in is not the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God above all. Only Yahweh, Elohim, Jehovah is. God, only He is King, only He is great, and it is only to Him that we are commanded and we are invited to worship. So we have an invitation. We've got the why. Just in case you missed the invitation, number three, we come back and we get a second invitation. Oh, come, verse six, let us worship 
and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And I love this because we have that initial invitation in verses 1 and 2. Then in verse 3 and 5, we are given the reason. Now the psalmist invites us again. Why? What, what is he doing? He's saying we should come and worship. But just in case you were unclear on the first invitation as to why, he gives us the why in verses 3 through 5. And then in 6, he's like, okay, you were invited and I told you why. But if you missed all that, I want to invite you one more time. But look at the change. Look at the difference in the invitation. We have some instruction now. And I love what the psalmist has done here because it's perfect. Obviously, it's perfect. Because every word has been uttered and given from God. So the psalmist has shown us who God is. He's shown us why we're to worship. And so now he gives us instruction as to the posture. That's important. As to the posture of our worship. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand because we're all guilty. Okay? How many times have you arrogantly and insistently barged into the throne room of God demanding an audience? We do this because why? Because we assume that God owes us, right? I mean, since God has taken us into his family, then we have the right to tell God how it's going to be. Like, God, you need to do this. God, if you love me, you would. And we begin to lay out the instructions for the day for God. Do you do that at work? How many of you would be willing to barge into the, to the office of the governor of Arkansas and demand an audience and say, listen, Hot Rod, this is the way it's going to be. Now, I've had the privilege and, and of, of, of serving as a chaplain of the Arkansas House of Representatives for four years. been around the governor. Uh, I, don't, I don't say that braggadocious. I'm just trying to give you some context. Every time I've been in a room with the governor, past governor, this present governor, he has had at least six men with earpieces. I'm not barging in anywhere and demanding anything. You know what I'm saying? And they got these little bulges on the side of their pockets. I'm not barging anywhere. Why? Because I have not earned that right. Who is more worthy of respect? The governor or Yahweh? Should we pay more respect to an elected official than we give to the great God and the king of all God? So instead of barging in and telling how God is going to be, based on what we've read up to this point, based on the fact that we're given the invitation to come before God, we're not, we're not given the, the, the right to demand that our request be made, not to act as though God should be honored by my arrival. Don't we do that, though? Like, like we feel like we assume that God's just in heaven twiddling his thumbs, waiting, boy, I sure wish Tim would come by and talk to me. Like, seriously? But the posture... Describes says, let us come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Friend, none of us have earned the right to be in the presence of God. Jesus earned that right for us. And it is high time the people of God remember exactly what had to happen for any of us to have the opportunity to come into the presence of Almighty God. I'm reminded of the time that Jesus told the story about the the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee stood above and in front of everyone else, didn't he? 
He prayed with such arrogance as though God should be honored that this Pharisee was on his team. And I love the way Jesus says that in Luke 18, verse 11. He said, the Pharisee, and I love the way it starts. Listen to what he says. We miss this a lot because we can just get it in the prayer. He said, the Pharisee stood and thus prayed, listen, with himself. And he said, God, I thank you that you are so merciful and so loving and so... No, 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 no. Oh, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector standing right over here. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. But then there's a tax collector, the traitor in the eyes of the Jewish people, the guy who was willing to go work for the enemy and fleece his own people at the same time. And he stood way, 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 way far off, away from everybody else. And listen to what he prayed. Tax collector, standing far off, Luke 18, 13, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, What? God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. Friends, when we pray, when we come into the presence of God for worship, let us not add to the noise of the Pharisees. And I fear that there's enough of those prayers being being offered from God's people today. But instead, we're to be humble. Remember what it took for any of us to be able to pray in the first place. Take the posture of Psalm 95, 6. Oh, let us come and worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before our Lord and Maker. Bow down before God in humility. Bow down as a sign of submission. Kneel in surrender to Jehovah God, your maker, because I promise you this, friends, he has earned the right. And none of us have earned the right to barge into his presence and demand an audience. Number four, he gives us more reasons to worship. In verse seven, why do we bow down? Why do we kneel in the presence? For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And the use of the shepherd here is, is, is wonderful. But here's the thing about the shepherd and the sheep in the context of the psalmist time of writing. Sheep were extremely valuable, right? Anybody ever raised sheep? Don't start now. They're stupid. They're awful. We started in seventh grade. I don't know why mom and dad did it, but I know why scripture says you are, are sheep because of the dumbest animals ever walked on the face of the earth. But the sheep were extremely valuable. source of food, source of clothing. It was their source of finance. And so if the sheep were harmed in any way, it wouldn't bode well for the shepherd, right? And a lot of the, a lot of the shepherds were hirelings. And Jesus talks about that in parable. But these, uh, these sheep were the prized possession of the shepherd. Think about that. The sheep are the prized possession of the shepherd. So we go back to verse 7 and we read, For he is our God. We are the sheep of the people of his pasture, the sheep of his, man, of his hands. It means several things. First, pasture is important. 
the shepherd was dedicated. I, I, I love taking an exhaustive study to, through Psalm 23 and, and know exactly what that means and the lengths that that shepherd would go. But, but the shepherd was dedicated to leading his sheep to the best pastures, not, not just for the best food, but the perfect pasture would, would supply plenty of good nourishment. Not only did it have fresh water, but it was safe for the flock, right? Because the shepherd could stand in one spot and he could scope out the entire field. He would have the vantage point of seeing, yep, there's water, yep, there's food, and yes, by standing right here, I can provide adequate protection. Because without adequate protection, then good water and good food's kind of pointless, right? But you know what I love about that too, his side note? The shepherd could stand where, the, where he could see the sheep and see the entire pasture, but guess what? Guess what the sheep could do? They could see their shepherd. You see, they see their shepherd, and what happens? We're good. We're good. We know that he's got us. Christian, you have been placed in the perfect pasture of God. He has sought out a place where you can eat and you can drink from the Word of God. He has brought you to a place where He can stand guard. As long as you do what? Stay close to the shepherd. And stay close to the other members of that flock. When a threat comes in the pasture, the shepherd is ready and capable of standing guard and offering that protection. So where does the danger come? Well, God's put us in this pasture. We're, we're, we're the people of this pasture and the sheep of His hand. Where does the danger come in that then? The danger comes when you stray away from the shepherd, right? The danger comes when you wander over to the edge of the pasture because that's where the predators are. That's where they're waiting. Christian, stay close to the shepherd. Stay in the pasture and stay in his hand. Well, what happens if we don't? That's number five, and we're, we're almost done. We're offered a warning to those who refuse to worship. You see, by staying close to the shepherd, by staying in the pasture, church, it can't help but drive us to worship. So the warning to those who refuse to worship, refuse to worship is found in the second part of verse 7. He's telling me, so, all right, guys, today, listen to me. Today, if you hear his voice, you will be in that pasture. You are the sheep of his hand. You will see the shepherd. Do that today. Don't be like your forefathers. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he talking about? He's talking about in the wilderness experience when they rebelled against God. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw, me, uh, they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. I said, it is the people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my way. So I swore my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. So this is where the danger of not worshiping is realized. And you say, my goodness, Tim. God's going to strike me down for not worshiping? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when you're close to God, you can't help but worship. And so if you're not offering worship, that means you're not close to God. That means you've wandered away. That means you've hardened your heart and you've looked to other things. So it's here we see this danger realized. The psalmist offers us a look, but he's looking backwards, isn't he? He's looking back across the history of the Hebrew people. 
God had brought them to a refuge. Well, in, in, in their account, it looked a whole lot more like a desert than a refuge. And maybe, maybe it felt hopeless. You know, it took them all of about five minutes to start fussing. You ever read that through, through Exodus? I mean, they didn't no more get out of Egyptian captivity. And they're like, oh, I brought us here to die by the Red Sea. Oh, we don't have any water. Oh, we're sick of this. Oh, we need some bread. Oh, we need some meat. And just, oh, la, 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 la. Sounded like a Baptist church business meeting, didn't it? Praise the Lord. God had brought them to the refuge. To them it may have felt hopeless, but here's why it began to feel hopeless. Because they began to look at their situation through their own eyes. They attempted to understand what God was doing from their perspective. And because of that, what happened? They began to harden their heart towards God. They got in their minds that they were a special people. We are the Abraham people. We are the Genesis 12 promise, the Genesis 15 um, reiteration of that promise. We are the stars. We are the sand, right? That's who we are. And we deserved much better treatment than what we are getting. But, but I mean, come on, let's cut them some slack because it makes sense. I mean, the only thing that God had done at that point, I mean, for this group of people, the only thing that God had actually done was to free them from 400 years of slavery and oppression. All he had done was give them more food and water than they could use. All he had done was make it to where their shoes and their clothing and all their stuff wouldn't uh, wear out. All he had done was given them supernatural abilities to fend off attacks from their enemies. So it's completely fair and reasonable for them to doubt God, right? I mean, it makes so much sense. It's ridiculous. But friend, that's exactly the same thing we do to God today. God has freed us from bondage and oppression of sin by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to die in our place, and three days later rise from the grave. All God has done for you has given you His holy word which we are blessed to read and to study so that we can have all the spiritual sustenance that we will ever need. And to top it all off, God says, hey, if you're not too busy, why don't you come into my house and my throne room and worship me and hang out with me today? They tried me, he says, though they saw my work. Don't we see the hand of God move every day? We experience the blessings of God every day. Scripture tells us that God's mercies are what? They are new every morning. Yet just like the people wandering in the wilderness, we get our feelings hurt. We harden our hearts towards God, and then we begin to challenge Him on every front. So friends, when we read God's description of these people, we need to listen. We need to look in the mirror. It is a people who go astray in their hearts. And they do not know my ways. As we get angry with God, let's get right here. As we get bored with God, as we get arrogant with God, we begin to turn our hearts away from God and put our focus where? Flashing lights on self. When we do this, we're telling God, I don't see your ways. Or we're telling God, I, I, I get it, I see your ways, I see what you're doing here. But I'm not going to give you credit. Friend, do you see it? You've been invited to come into the presence of God. And 
worship. You've been told why we are to worship because the psalmist has told us about the one that we are worshiping. You've been given a second chance. You've been given multiple invitations, but that invitation comes with instruction, and it's okay. That instruction of humility. How dare God, think about this, how dare God tell me how I am to worship because He is God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And in all of God's godliness, He said, I've got a crazy idea. I want these suckers to come and worship me. I want them to have free, unlimited access to my presence. And I just act one, I just ask for one thing. Treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Reverence me the way I deserve to be revered. God wants to see us enter into his presence. And this is how we started this morning with thanksgiving. And so this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you think that your life is is so out of balance. You think that your life is so disjointed and there's nothing in your life to be hopeful for, to be thankful for. Leave this place today. Go home before you touch that first piece of fried chicken and praise God's sweet tea. Read Psalm 95 again. Listen to the words. Read them in your heart. Hear them Plant them in your mind. Let them penetrate into the deepest recesses of your soul. And I'll promise you this. Not only will you find yourself giving thanks, but you know what you might, and it's okay because you'll be out of the church house, you might find yourself offering a shout of exclamation to our great God. How can we continue, church? Not just you. God's church. God's people. How can we continue to come and sit week in, week out? Come together knowing all of this. How can we continue to come and sit in somber silence and call it worship? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. I'm going to stop, sorry. Because I just did a preacher thing there. Oh, let us come. That was the dumbest thing I've done after everything I've preached this morning. He says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. There's a line with a dot underneath that. You know what that means, right? This is an exclamatory say. Let us come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with, with psalms. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Let us come and worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. He is our God, he says. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Church, I submit to you this morning, this is what our worship should look like all the time. Father, you're good to us. God, I don't know why. I legitimately don't. I don't know why you put up with what we call worship so often. 
And, and, I, and I, I, get, I even get tired of that word, the way it's being used anymore, because we talk about the worship service, the, the worship through song, the worship through this. The, it's just worship. God, if we're truly worshiping, we don't have to have the best vocalist. We don't have to have the best musicians. We don't have to have the best preacher. We don't even have to have the same English translation of the Bible. God, if it is worship, it is right. But it's not an event. It's a state of being. Paul tells us to to, to pray without ceasing. Well, prayer is, is, is a continual state of worship, right? Making those requests. And so, God, my prayer this morning is that we never see worship the same. It's not an event, it's not a style, it's not a preference. It is an opportunity we have in our fallible, sinful wickedness to come into the presence of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, to be in the presence of Almighty God, Creator of everything, to come to the very throne room where where Jesus Christ Christ, the Lamb of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father in joyful anticipation for you to say, all right, that's good, that's enough, go get them. We get to come there whenever we want because of Jesus. But oh God, when we come into your presence, may we come and surrender, humility, reverence, and in all that we get to be called the sheep of your pasture, people of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. Father, my prayer this morning is simple. Number one, if there's one here who's never truly accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that they come. Because they don't get to come into your presence. Father, they've never acknowledged their sin, realized their sin separates them from you. They've never asked you to forgive their sin and, and entrusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, accepting His, his, his perfect life, his, his sacrifice of laying that life down on the cross, shedding His blood, being suspended between a holy God and a sinful man on that cross, dying forever, paying the price through His atoning blood, being buried in a borrowed tomb, and I praise Your name that it was only borrowed for three days because on the third day it rose again, conquering sin, hell, death, and the grave. And Father, all we have to do is just believe. We just have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, I pray if there's one who's never not done that, I pray that they do it today. And Father, for your church, I pray that we understand what we have to be thankful for. Life may be upside down. Life is upside down. Life's a mess. world's a mess. country's a mess. But God, you're not. And you tell us, Jesus tell us, come unto me. Oh, you're heavy laden. Cast your cares upon me. Your burdens are heavy. These are mine or light. Take my yoke upon you. Father, let us come into your presence. And every time we do it, let us come with thanksgiving, reverence, and awe. Because you are the great God. We love you. We praise you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys uh, for letting me uh, come today. Is there anything else that needs to happen before? Okay.